At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm here to introduce a bonus episode of the Roblon Podcast, an interview that we got with director Julia Ducornu, who has a new film coming out called Titan. And as you uh, can see, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, Jake and Kevin are joining me because they were the guys who handled the interview in my absence. Hello, boys. How are you? Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you too, Sean. I I actually have never been on one of these little intros before, so this is exciting for me. Kind of fun. It's kind of exciting. Um, I feel like I'm in some special club now with you and Gabe. (laughs) So, uh, Titan won the Palme d'Or earlier this year and is a uh, unique film, uh, which uh, she's going to get into a lot of her motivations for it. And it's one of those, I I don't even really know what to say about the movie because it feels like if you even describe what it's about, it's, uh, it's... you're giving away some of the big spoilers of it. So we'll hear how these guys danced around specifics. Uh, and then we'll get on the other side of the interview and talk about um, how it went from their perspective. So without further ado, the Real Blend podcast bonus episode with Julia Ducornu talking about Titan. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on. We are definitely a, a filmmaker-driven podcast. And so please feel free to get as, as nerdy as you want to um, because this is very yeah. much our jam and very much what we love to do. Um, so Julia, I'm going to start out talking about goes without saying a lot of people are talking about some of the more shocking aspects of this film, but one of the things I also want to drive home is how much by the end of the story, there's this really sort of beautiful story about family and what family means by the end of it. So I'm sort of curious, as a storyteller, the balance between sort of the sweetness of the story and the shock of the story, because you don't want the shock to overtake sort of a lot of the, the sweeter messages of this so that people don't get that. So how do you balance the two? Um, well, it gives with for me, like you can't like you can't be tender without like somehow it's not even tender. It's like you can't talk about love uh, without talking about a world without love first in order to somehow, um, yeah, make it um, so important that and so um, uh, necessary to our world. Um by just starting with it. Basically, you have got to start with something where you miss something, when it's deprived, when it's violent, when it's um, um, emotionless, also in the case of my character. So for me, everything, yeah, both goes with darkness, goes with light, vice versa, and it depends on the trajectory of your film. Here, it's an ascending trajectory. So um, it was really, for me, very clear um, from the get-go that I wanted to uh, start with that last scene um, that is, for me, um a very um let's say um yeah a very um unconditional way of 
portraying love between two, two characters, because you're talking about family, but for me, it's like even beyond that. Mm. Of course, there is something about electing uh, your family in the film. It's mm. a lot about election. But the love that I want to convey at the end of this is a love that goes beyond any form of representation, any form of determinism, any form of social construct. So it's, it, it envelopes all that. I mean, at the end, they are everything to each other, which means the father, son, father, daughter, lovers, companions, all that, you know. And um, knowing I, would, I wanted you to leave the room with that feeling, with that kind of optimistic beam of light at the end of it that somehow um, um, conveys the idea of the birth of a new world, of a new humanity, where that would be stronger because it's born um, in love and because monstrosity in that birth is no longer seen as an abnormality, but as something that deserves to be accepted and loved. And, um, and so when you start with that, you have got to walk your way back to the beginning in a 180 in order to have your ascending tra trajectory with this. And this is how you, um, you start with something that is, that is way more violent and way darker than that. Uh, by the way, you, you say you use the word shocked, which is a word that I'm not too keen on, to be honest, because honestly, I, I don't do anything to shock anyone. I assume that some things will, but this is something that comes after uh, that I've finished the film. You know, it's not something that I actually intend to do. There is something a bit gratuitous in this. And I do believe that, again, in order to express that love, to express the birth of that love and the emotions of humanity in my film, we have got um, to... Um, to um, find our characters at the start of it on the precipice of their own humanity, which means that are only like either um, driven by death impulses, like it's her case, or by a complete uh, mad fantasy, like it's his, you know? Mm. So yeah, nothing gratuitous in that. You know, I want to talk to you about a wonder that you have in this film that I'm I'm still trying to figure out how the heck you did it. Um, the um, it's the wonder as she's walking into the car area and then the dance sequence and then at one point we switch to her doing the dancing with the car and it's all done. It looks like one a wonder. I don't know if you have any stitches in there, but no. I was wondering. Uh, oh, you yeah. don't. <laughs> all right, that's that's what I that's what I wanted to ask you because that is one of the most impressive wonders I've ever seen. So I was wondering. Uh, if you could walk me through the production of that, how that was shot, um, that switch that gets made, which is really kind of, it, it took me off guard as well when we see her kind of fully dancing. Um, if you can just walk through the production of that, because it's an incredible shot. Well, the first thing is that when I wrote that scene, it was instantly written in the script that it would be a one -er. For me, there was absolutely no questions um, about that because I really needed to create an, ev an evolution in your own gaze on this on the the, the 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 hostesses on the dancers that leads you to alexia and i need you i needed for your gaze to shift it was important because at the start of this shot what i'm trying to do is to mimic a male gaze that would objectify women um i would say like as much as they do with cars but i still think that cars are at a higher level of respect at the start of this film than the the, the dancers and Doing so, when you get to the character of Justine, you already have like her who is immediately incarnated 
because she's looking at uh, Alexia and she, she talks. And basically she's the only one who talks there. She talks because she goes through an assault. So it means that your empathy goes on her at this moment. And she retaliates and pushes the guy away. And then the guy is pushed. So this is like one first step in order to try to reverse the narrative of the male gaze. And then you get, you get to uh, Alexia um, to the car. And Alexia, the way I... I um, direct her choreography contrarily to uh, the other the other dancers is that she um she's not dancing next to a car or with like um on the car she's dancing with the car right so there is something about the moves that we created with the choreographer that um somehow makes her take over the car which was not the case with the previous dancers and on top of that she's looking right through the camera so looking right through the camera means that she completely reclaims the narrative. It makes her active because it's not you who's looking at her anymore. She's looking at you. The, the male gaze is far gone at this level. And you see how it was important to have an evolution towards that in order to really put the emphasis on the reversing of the male gaze and on also making her the, the active uh, character of the scene and of the whole film, you know, being the first time that we see her as an adult. So um, that's how I thought about this. And then technically speaking, it was indeed a very um, hard uh, shot to have. However, like basically it was our first day of shoot. That's period. That's the first day. Wow. That's a big first day. <laughs> yeah. That was a crazy first day. <laughs> oh my God. I'm, yeah. Keep so, talking. I'm, I'm the, technically, how, yeah. How did you pull it off? How many takes was it? It was, I mean, it, I, I couldn't stop. I was so immersed in it. I, it was one of the most immersive wonders I've ever seen. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, it was insane. It was insane. So basically, well, obviously, it's a shot that we prepared for months ahead and all the choices I did with the car, the casting of the cars, the way we designed the set, what I wanted it to look like, the fact it had to be very metallic, um, the costumes of the dancers, which had to be metallic as well in order to rem remind of the hoods of the cars and all that in order to put them at the same level, you see, and all that. Um, <laughs> so everything was really like well thought through and worked on ahead for months before the first day of shooting we had one day of rehearsal so that's when it gets funny so on the first day of rehearsal basically it's just it's me my actresses so uh the doppelganger because it's a doppelganger and my actress and the crew and the cars so we rehearsed this. So basically the movement was held first with an operator who had the Ronin, so an exoskeleton, the one that goes through the crowd from the get-go, blah, 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 leads us to uh, the car. But before we get to her car, we get into a crowd when the security guy takes the guy out and we follow into a crowd. At that moment, the operator detaches the camera from the Ronin and puts it like somehow like um, it's kind of like a, how do you call that? It's not um, it's not magne magnetic. It's um, you know these kind of things you have on crane like this. Sure, sure, but yeah. it's attached to a different thing. You reattach it yeah, to something I don't else. Know it. So he detaches from the Ronin, puts in the, on the crane, and then it's my DP <sighs> who goes on with the follow the following um, of the oh. the shot with the, 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 the choreography around the car. So it was obviously the, the hard part, which at, at least we thought it was going to be the hard part, was to not feel the change of grip 
that you had to go from the exoskeleton to the crane, detaching it and reattaching it in the same movement. So we do that, we rehearse like crazy, we're very happy with ourselves. We have all our uh, marks on the floor for my um, first operator to actually walk through um, between the cars and the, all that. Next day, first day of shooting, 300 extras, and my operator comes to me and he says, I have no marks on the floor anymore. We have to do it back again. Like we have to do everything from scratch because 300 people just walk, walking all around and that you can't see the marks anymore. Oh, wow. so we lose oh, everything pretty much that we've done before. <laughs> so we're like, okay, no problem. We know what we're doing. We know where we're going. We know the intentions. We know what we want to shoot and all that. So no problem. We'll go back from scratch. In the end, we got 37 takes. Um, 37 takes that I want to say um, were 37 takes with 10 perfectly good ones. It's a lot. Like really perfectly good ones. Um, we had an amazing day. And um, we just kept on going also because we still had some time before the end of the day. And we could, you know, we had the luxury to keep on going because we had rehearsed so well in the previous month that it was clear for everyone, felt incredibly fluid. And um, yeah, and was a crazy first day for the reason that after that, basically when you create one earth like this, I create them to have a shot that I can actually make with the entire crew. Like I want everyone to be working on that one. I don't want anyone yeah. to be bored and to wait for with the cigarettes, waiting for the next shot because they don't have anything to do. It's really things that for me are made to challenge the whole team and somehow to make us more close, close knitted, you know, and it really worked because it was the first day. So you start with that and then you have a team who has learned to work together in just one day. And that's amazing. Wow. That's crazy. Is that why you chose for it? I'm sorry if this is a stupid question, but is that why you chose for it to be the first day to, to bring sort of that, that yeah. team collaboration I together? That. Actually, my first assistant chose that. And at the start, I was like, oh, man, that's really risky, Claire. And it's like, uh, and she was like, yes, yes. I mean, yeah, no, no, no. We don't have a... Anyway, for location planning, all that, blah, 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 we didn't have a choice, really. But in the end, thinking about it and talking to, to her about it, we thought, actually, that might, that might go great. That might, that might be a great wow. idea. And nowadays, I think that for me, next time, I will try to start with like a very hard shot like this because it yeah. really like, you know, launches you for very high ambitions throughout the whole, the whole shooting, basically. Wow. Wait, how, wait, how did you how did you fix the adjustment though? You you didn't you didn't mention that. How did you make it Marks? look like we didn't like no 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 the, when the camera went from the, the you you took the camera off and put reattached it. How did you make that clean? Well, because my operators were both very good. Wow. <laughs> that helps. We rehearsed rehearse a lot, and then at some point it becomes fluid, you know. Wow. So cool. Wow. Well, you mentioned something that you learned on this film that you're going to take to your next film. I'm a huge fan of Raw, and I was wondering what, what the most valuable lesson that you learned on Raw that you brought to this film. Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. The first thing I think, it's not a lesson at all, but it's something that did trigger a lot of, um, of my desires, like visually speaking, for Titan, is that I, um, I thought that in Raw... I did not let myself, um, let's say, um, think about cam movements enough. I think Titan has a lot of still shots mm. with a lot, of, a lot of things happening in them, but somehow it felt to me that I, I missed something in terms of my visual language. 
you know, that I hadn't been like as far as I wanted to. Also linked to the fact that we had the way lesser budget. That's a very big thing. It's like when you have a lesser budget and you don't have many days of shooting, it means that you can't really like uh, organize a full day that is just dedicated to one shot because it's like so crazy and so hard to make. So that's the one thing that I said, okay, on Titan, I want to go heavier on grip while not losing um, inside, uh, out of sight the fact that I need to stay close to my characters. So basically it was always in my head, still keeping the handheld very close things, but adding scenes that were a bit more ample, a bit uh, yeah, more ambitious somehow. So I took that from this frustration going, um, that was going on in Raw. And I think like a lesson... Again, not really a lesson, but I, I took a lot of my crew back from Raw and definitely like convinced me that that's the way to go for me. I will do the same with the next one. Um, I think like basically working with people who know your universe, who um, know the way you're working on a set, which is like incredibly unique in particular to any director and um, know the level of my ambitions and how demanding I can be. Uh, makes it like so easier and also helps you go so much deeper afterwards for the next one. For example, with my DP with Ruben, like we we felt like way more free to um, to uh, want to work together on sets. I mean, we were way more together in, ter- in terms of um, yeah, collaborating really, and just he was like we were constantly together on set. We would constantly talk together. It was, again, like very um, free and very easy, which was not necessarily the case on Raw. I mean, Raw, it went well, but we had not reached this level of complicity that we had on Titan, and which, again, made it possible for me to go like, listen, Ruben, uh, okay, this is the shot list. I, this shot, I think it's not going to work. We've got to find something else together. We have to like just reverse the thing because this is not working. That's going to be too flat. And then you go like you... You think like a think tank together yeah. and you can, you can like raise the ambitions, raise the bar of the ambitions constantly, which is great. And that so goes with like my sound guys in Paris, but also on set with um, my continuity woman even because she's like very active also in my in my pro- process um, with uh, my editor, obviously, that I've been working with since my first story and so on and so on. I really think that it's, uh, it helps you go deeper and be like more precise in what you want. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Sure. There's a scene in this film. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of scenes uh, as an audience member that are, there are, they are hard to watch. There's a few scenes that it just in ter- in terms of like, visually speaking uh things that like are but it's an immersive thing so like you feel it um like to like because the way you make it you feel it uh and the scene that particularly i feel like i felt the most physical pain was the nose scene um and i wanted to ask about shooting that and how much of that comes down to sound design how much of it comes down to the the angle of the camera? Um, for people who don't know what we're referring to, the character basically is breaking her nose, um, and she tries it with her hand, and then tries it with a with an end of a table. Um, and I wanted to ask just about how you accomplished that. Um, were there ever any accidents? Were it fil- fully hit? No. I mean, I mean, it was just, it's it, it's so realistic <laughs> and immersive that. I physically felt my nose in pain and I wanted to, I just wanted to know how you achieved it. You know, that's cute. I mean, you're very naive. That's very nice. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. I just, I, I, it just, honestly, it was so immersive that I just, I, I felt every bit of it. I mean, even the, the scene in the toilet, I mean, with the, with the toilet paper, I mean, it was just a lot of it was like my body felt it. That is the wonder of cinema, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. One thing, I do feel that my film is not necessarily hard to watch. I think it's hard to feel, for sure. Hard to feel. Good oh, point. Good, good, good way to As say it. Said, good way it's to say very, it. very immersive, obviously, uh, intentionally. And, uh, but doesn't mean, like, for me, hard to watch means that somehow uh, there has been uh, someone, um, the director, maybe uh, overindulging in some... Uh, hard to feel is good. That's the way to put yeah. it. I like that. It's, like, it's okay. not like pushing the limits. It says that the lim- in the, the limits of, the, of my character's POV, and that's the only thing that I'm interested in. So, But mm. because what she inflicts upon herself is so hard, and I want you to feel it, obviously, it makes it hard for it to feel for you as well. Yeah, <laughs> That's a, for me, you know, it's a, this is a very good way to relate to a character that you actually cannot condone or like you can't condone that character's acts or anything or you can't morally relate to her. But the way I make you stay in that room and stay and bear with her is really uh, through her body experience. So this is the immersive aspect of it is crucial for me to keep you in that room until you see the follow up and, and, and until you can actually relate to her emotions when they start like emerging, you know. So um, the thing with that scene, so no, obviously no humans were hurt during the making of that film. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but, but, but is it angles? Is it how, how, how much of it is sound? How much of it is angles? And I'm just wondering like how you, how you do make that so immersive. It basically, it's just me making you anticipate the worst. The worst. That's just uh-huh. mise en scène. Basically, throughout that whole scene, it starts fairly easy with the hair, still it's like it's pretty extreme, but it remains like yeah. completely not painful. And then she starts shaving her face, and then like you see her looking at her nose and touching it. That's the first step where you're starting to go, oh no. <laughs> and and then going from that, it's just me raising basically the, the your anticipations of what's gonna happen. For example, mm. when she punches herself, you have a small little like pathetic punch at the beginning that barely makes any noise 
And she makes this kind of like squealing noise, like very girly squealing noise. And then the second one, though, is quite harder. And the third one is really something I would not like to take in myself. So it's really, again, like gradually making you like feel that something bigger and bigger and bigger is going to happen. And then where I have you normally is when you hear the sound of her touching mm -hmm. the sink. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very distinct, distinct, distinct sound. You know, everyone can recognize that. And when she does, mm -hmm. dun, 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 and you go, okay, mm -hmm. all right, that's happening. That's going to happen. And this is just like you flipping out because you know it's going to happen. And I make you also, I give you the time to actually anticipate it because mm -hmm. she doesn't do it like right away. She doesn't go, tu, 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 boom, she's crashing her nose. No, right. she tries it. She tries, she puts her little nose next to the sink. She does the other side. She just, she, she, stands up again, she goes back again, stands up again, goes back again. And then I'm playing with your nerves here, completely playing with your nerves. And after that, honestly, the camera on, on angle I chose, which is like um, going up like this, you know, counter, counter dive. And um, it's actually overly dramatic. This, this, this kind of angles are overly dramatic, generally speaking. Mm. And it feels like they, they reveal a lot of what's going to happen. It means that basically what, when you see that angle, you know that there's going to be some frontality. But mm. what you actually see when she really smashes her nose is nothing. You don't see shit. But the first thing is that because obviously there is a plate here and it's not the same shot. It's me stitching two shots together. Yeah. And you don't see, it's too far to see any real like nose, like bone breaking. <laughs> you don't see anything. You don't see any blood at all. The blood is in her hand when she comes back up. So basically what you see is nothing. All you do is anticipate and hear the sounds of celery being broken, which is perfect for breaking bones in the cinema business in Foley. And that's it. It reminds me of uh, like the, the needle in, in Pulp Fiction, that you don't actually see the needle going yeah, through exactly. the Thurman. And everyone thinks that they've seen it. Yeah. Everyone thinks they've seen it. Think about Fincher 7, because like you don't see any of the violence happen. You see the aftermath and you just imagine yeah. it. I, yeah. I want to say thank you, by the way, for the answer you just gave, because I don't think people truly understand what goes into a shot like that. And the way you just described it as a storyteller like knowing that you like what you just said is how I experienced it. It that's exactly what I went through while I watched it. And to know that those were your intentions of where I would be emotionally throughout that scene and to hear you affirm that is just amazing to me. So thank you for sharing that. That was really cool to hear that. Jake, well, go ahead. Sorry. It I just, kind of kills the magic for anyone who's listening. Yeah? I just think <laughs> but, but, but our audience for this podcast likes, likes having the stuff. magic. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, it's we're, we're both an appreciator of magic and also a deconstructor of it sometimes. You right. also kind of gave a masterclass on storytelling and, and, and filmmaking. And I think people who listen to our show like that kind of stuff. And I honestly... It's amazing to me that you put that much thought into that. That's what I experienced. So just thank you. That oh, was cool as hell. I think you yeah, put that much ahead, thought in every aspect and every shot and every take of it. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> um, without giving away anything or without getting into spoilers, when this film ended and it cuts to the title card, I spent the next couple of days wondering what comes next. And and I, I would never come to you as a storyteller and go, okay, tell me what happens after this, this, and this. 
But in your mind, do you know? Is, is there a part of you that where your mind has wondered and thought about? And in your mind, is that the definitive answer? I think, yeah, there will be no sequel because I know how it's going to end. So. so that's the reason. I think it's a very happy ending. Mm. That's the only thing I can tell you because I don't want to break it or anything. But it yeah. can only be happy. I mean, at the, at the, I mean, yeah, there is something that I could say, but honestly, so once someone, okay, I'm just going to tell you that. Once someone asked me very randomly, what is the baby's name? Oh, a great and question. I answered, the baby's name is Alexia. Because, because she gave birth to herself, essentially, or? Because she shed her last skin. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> this, this, this interview uh, is like, I need to go back and watch this movie we just, again. We just got the five minute warning on this interview and now I have like 50 more questions we for have you. So many, we, 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 have been, we wrote so much for you. Um, oh my God. That's incredible. Um, I want to ask you about linear and awesome. nonlinear filmmaking because I would imagine this is a very hard film to shoot nonlinearly considering the body changes and changes that go through in the film. Did did those changes affect the fact that you had to almost shoot in order? Like, was that almost, or, or were you able to play with that? I'm curious how much her body changes affected your linear shooting process. I think that, um, well, because Agathe is a non-professional uh, actress and it was her first shooting, um, I think it was very fortunate that because of the prosthetics, we kind of had, and also because of the, somehow of the structure of the shooting, we started in the south of France to do the first 30 minutes, and then we went back to the suburbs of Paris to do the rest. And all everything that happened in Vincent's um, apartment basically had to be chronological because you're in the same yeah. place for like 10 days or two weeks or whatever. And, um, and I think that was very fortunate that the, the prosthetics grew bigger as um, Agathe was more and more into the shooting and, and the, somehow the linearity of this, uh, of this story. It really helped her have a grasp on what has, was happening to her character, really. And um, I do believe, by the way, that prosthetics are an amazing way for an actor to really like, uh, enter, like, to enter a character and to find a true like, companion of acting with. I think prosthetics are perfect for that. And to a certain extent, I think that Vincent, while doing heavy, lift, um, heavy um, weightlifting for a year and a half before, kind of like grew his own prosthetics and somehow his body was so different from who he really was and his age as well. I mean, it's absolutely insane what he did. Uh, it really helped him getting like into the idea that he was Vincent Legrand, which is the name of my character, and not Vincent Landon, which is the name of the actor. Um, so um, also, by the way, for that thing, is like once Vincent asked me, uh what um i don't know he asked me something like what do you what do you think really about my character or whatever and but this was after the shooting like really after the shooting and i said vincent do you you remember the name of your character right and he said yeah it's le grand he says vincent i called you le grand which means like in french it means um it's like the the one it means the one the big one the only one Le Grand is something that is very, you know, like super um, heroic somehow. And he only like, he only like, 
I only realized that month after the shooting. <laughs> like, oh my God, but if I had known that you had called me like this, he was like, I would have been so scared to play, to act him, you know, <laughs> to see him. I'm like, yeah, that's a good thing you never realized then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so funny because he had like, it shed a new light on his character all of a sudden. And, um, and so wait, uh, wait, talking about, yeah, the prosthetics, you asked me, what did you ask me again? In terms of like, if it affected your linear structure of how you shot in order or not, that's that, that's basically what I was asking you. I think it really affected the the our, um, our order of shooting day by day, because okay. basically prosthetics. I love working with them, but it's a huge pain in the ass. Like really, it's uh, it's something like after each film, I'm like never again, and the next one I go again because you can't have find a, a better. Uh, organic feel of the skin and of a transformation than with prosthetics. Of course, helped a little bit by video effects, but still, I mean, or it really helps the actor and really way better for the audience. Anyway, um, so every day you put on the prosthetics on, I get had pretty much between four hours and six hours of makeup every morning, which was draining for her. And after that, basically, you have to work the prosthetics as much as you can and do everything that you can before they start peeling off. Because they will start peeling off. At one point, they will start falling, which is like very, by the way, they're like, she had like prosthetics all over the body. So when it starts falling, everything falls with. It's really like, it's not just one little piece here that you can mend. No, it's like everything, the whole thing is falling. Obviously, because what she had to do was quite extreme and she was moving a lot and she was punching in and all that. So it really had an impact on the prosthetics. And so basically, we had to do as much as we could before it peeled off, because when it peels off, it's not like it takes you 10 minutes to, you know, glue again. It takes two hours. In our small production, we did not have two hours a day to be spent in the in the putting the glue back and on her and to put the makeup back. And we didn't have that kind of time at all. So it was really like a race, you know, a, a race against time and the prosthetics in order to like enter everything we could with it. So obviously it had to be like completely like, we knew we had to start the day with it. Like every day, every day we had to start with like, everything was after that. The rest was after that, everything, not the prosthetics. So that affected us a lot, yeah. Wow, wow. Uh, we have so much yeah, stuff. Yeah, Julia, they too. are giving us the wrap. We are out of time. But this was a hell of a conversation. And seriously, we cannot thank you enough for joining us on Ribland. And we, we hope you enjoyed yourself as well. Yeah, I did. Thank you. I mean, I thank you for these questions. It was very different from usual. And I love talking about technical analysis. So thank you. Well, you're welcome yeah. on anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a, have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. We want to thank Neon so much for giving us time with Julia. It's so exciting to have her on the show. Uh, guys, dive into the movie a little bit because I know you guys, you really enjoyed speaking with her. Uh, and, and I know this is a movie that's on a lot of people's radars. Yeah. yeah, we, it's, uh, yeah. I, I mean, Kevin, would you go as far as saying that it's it's Cronenberg-esque? Um, yeah. And that, you know, it really kind of tackles sort of the the genre of, of body horror in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of people have been making comparisons to the film, uh, the 90s film Crash, not the... Not the um, somehow best picture winner crash um it's it's a hard movie to explain mm. um i guarantee you if you've heard about this film you've probably heard like a quick one-liner um that is unfair because it doesn't actually sum up really what the film is about but it's 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 hard to watch at times um and well, hard not to not feel. Yes, yeah, and as as Julia pointed out, not in a gratuitous sense when we say shocking, but I but I also think that shocking isn't 
necessarily the wrong word, but I don't mean it in a gratuitous sense um, because there is an element to the story there. Um, and uh, but here, here's what I'll tell you: I was never bored. <laughs> that is definitely one way to put it. Yeah. I have to be candid. Um, part of the reason why I sat out the interview is because I couldn't make it through the film. Um, and so when Jake says it's uncomfortable to get through, like that's an honest reaction. Uh, I, I yeah. got through about 30 minutes of it uh, before I realized that I just was not going to, I was not going to make it. Uh, and I'm not really an insensitive, you know, I, I can get through some decent, some decent shocking stuff. Jake made us watch human centipede for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, but it was, it pushed the boundaries. Which I've never seen, by the way. You really should. That's, that's going to be the next thing. Um, and Kev, I know you had some some struggle getting through it too, but you you at least pushed through and made it. Well, for me, you know, this is the kind of interview that I that I this is the kind of interview that reminds me why I love doing this show so much because mm-hmm. this is the kind of interview where we took a deep dive with a filmmaker and my experience with that film. I had never seen anything like it. So one of the things I was texting you guys, like this is so hard to watch or so hard to feel as, as she said, but I, but I made it through. I kept watching because I wanted to know what was going to happen. What's fascinating to me now is after that discussion, I, I, it's so funny. If you told me before the interview, watch that movie again, I would say there's no chance I'm putting my body and my mind through that again. It's like, it, it is a painful experience in terms of the body things that happens to the character. Mm-hmm. But now after that interview, when she was explaining specifically about the, the scene where she breaks her nose, it was, um, it was mind blowing for me as an audience member, because everything she said she intended to do in that scene is what happened to me as I sat on my couch and watched it. Mm. And I don't know that I think it, in my mind, I was so horrified by 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 the violence that that was being inflicted on some of the characters that I didn't think to think about thematically what the violence meant or what mm. the director was doing. What's what this interview really taught me, and I think this is something we all know, but it, but I think it's something that taught me even more, and it taught me it opened my eyes to this even wider is how much control a filmmaker really has on you. Mm. And I mean that in the sense that it is, everything is calculated. Every single thing is calculated to a point where a filmmaker knows exactly, or they, they should know exactly where your mind is probably going with this image. And how do I then play with them? And then we were talking about this, I think Jake or someone mentioned this in terms of Tarantino. Uh, Gabe mentioned this uh, in in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when he describes the story about Rosemary's Baby and Polanski having the audience lean in on that shot. Um, I there's a lot to learn about that. I mean, I've always looked at direction in terms of the way I watch a film and kind of the way it affects me. But this interview opened my eyes to a whole nother world of intention that I had never really thought about before. Um well- it was like and a masterclass, to be honest with you. I was like honored to hear her talk about it. I was like, whoa. There are filmmakers who are not engaging that way. Like they're very passive. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. almost makes you then regret that they're wasting their shot, you know, right. because they can't, you can be really 
uh, manipulative and influential with film and with your images or with mm-hmm. sound mm-hmm. or with a performance. And so when you do see a filmmaker mail it in, uh, for lack of a better word, and I don't think yeah. anyone who's actively making a film uh, is truly mailing it in, but I do think that there are people who go the extra mile to do more, uh, to think about how is the audience going to respond to this uh, and how can I maybe tweak their expectations, you know, and maybe catch them off guard. And those are the movies that tend to stand out and, and speak to us from that reason. Why I like the interview so much is because it's an easy film to write off because of how disturbing it is. Mm. Um, and in all honesty, as my as I viewed the film, I told you guys, I was like, I would never watch this ever again because it's just so it's so it's so hard to feel or watch. But now talking to her and it's so funny because like i'm not saying that the interview made the movie better for me it just made it more interesting because she explained to me what i went through without me telling her what i went through Mm -hmm. she knew exactly what i went through emotionally in my head as i watched a specific scene and the idea that that translated exactly to me is mind-blowing like that's you like know, some I, magic magic filmmaking um, i also think it is possible to appreciate the craft and the filmmaking of a movie sure while also admittedly not loving the film itself and i think if anything to your point kevin what this did for me was amp up my appreciation for her work as a director and her filmmaking techniques right and, and really i mean you can say a lot of things about this film, but what you cannot say is that it is poorly made. It is very well constructed, and talking with her only gave me a, a better appreciation for that. Well, she walks us through this one, or Sean, you at least made it to this shot um, yeah. in the beginning of the film where she's walking in, uh, she walks into like a, a car show where people are dancing. The description of what she's doing thematically in that scene, thematically, like narratively, not just the cool shot. Um, It's so calculated. There are 37 takes on that shot. And and Sean, since I know you haven't heard the the interview yet, there was a camera on a different rig that they had to switch to a different rig all in the oneer, without a stitch. Mm -hmm. And it's all... It's all done thematically to change your perspective on a character. Mm. And I'll be honest with you, I think, and this is, I have no problem, I have no problem saying this. My first experience with that film, I I really just looked at it as as this shocking piece of material. And I don't think that I allowed it to emotionally wrap me because I was so disturbed by it but now hearing that conversation I'm just like I wonder how I'll feel again now I will say I don't want to watch some of the scenes again though that's the problem but here's the thing though too not everybody's going to get a chance to speak with her or even listen to her give an interview there's a lot of people who are just going to watch it the first time and and that their visceral initial reaction is going to be their takeaway so let me tell you that before speaking to her this was a film that i would not have recommended to somebody just because because it was so hard for me to physically watch painfully Uh, and i'm not and, and this is not at all me saying i'm like giving it a better review because i talked to the director this is me saying 
I am now more fascinated by the choices. So I'm interested. I still don't know. Like you said, Sean, 99.9% of the people who would watch this movie probably won't hear the interview, probably won't right. hear the intention. Um, this is a toss-up for me. I, Gabe will tell you this, and you can watch it in the video. You'll see me becoming more interested in the film mm-hmm. during the interview. Like, you'll see me geeking out like about like her choices. To me, it was almost like, I felt like I was learning from a master, cla- a master filmmaker. I just felt like I was being blessed with material, like intention. This is why I did this. I mean, like, oh my God. So Kevin, I have a question for you. I have a question for Kevin. Would this inspire you, inspire you potentially then to go back and, and watch Raw? So I've never seen Raw. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. But now having spoken to her and understood her process, <sighs> could you watch one of her films, which is also... Um, how do I phrase this? You'll feel that one too. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in her words. Now that you understand her process, you can't watch Teton for the first time ever again, but you can watch no. Raw for the first time. So it, I will. And I'll tell you this, the only movie in the history of cinema I've ever turned off is irreversible. Um, I've never seen it. At, at, you don't just don't. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, I don't even know, I think I know what that is. I, so I never made it to the, there, there, there's apparently a 20 minute, rape sequence um which which i have I, I i never made it to i turned it off after after the scene there's a, there's a scene where a guy's face is beaten in with a fire extinguisher with and a fire runner, extinguisher and well, they and they Sean, spin have you it. seen this movie i've like, seen it yeah I saw you watch it a guy's face go from a face to hamburger meat in one in a oneer um and Ugh. it is it is so though i turned that off i kept watching titan and there must be a reason, right? Because there was stuff in Titan that was just to me as graphic as irreversible. Maybe subconsciously, like, I don't know. There was, it was a really weird thing for a filmmaker to tell me how I felt for well, real. We've had, moment we've had to a moment. conversation too, though, as we, as we've each gotten older, that it's just not, you don't want to see this stuff anymore. No, necessarily. And that's the hard part. But I, I think at the end of the day, would I recommend the film? I don't know, but I'm fascinated and I'm honored that I now understand it better. Okay. All right. So it's a, it's a, it's a straight, this is all happening in live time. We just did this interview like an hour ago, so I'm still processing this, but this is a really weird situation for me because it's, it, 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 it was a film that deeply was painful to watch and it was a hard film to watch. And I don't, I, I wouldn't tell my mom or dad or I wouldn't tell people to watch this like on a Saturday night. It is not one of those kind oh. of movies. But at the end of the day, I, I am in awe of her intention, in her direction, in her thought process. So if anything, it's the filmmaking, like Jake said, that I'm just, I feel like honored that I got to talk to her for a film that I would even have a hard time recommending to somebody. That makes, well, this that is, makes no uh, sense, but this is Palm Door winner, yeah. uh, Titan. So, uh, it, and I believe it's rolling out into theaters. So you guys will get a chance to see it. I'm probably just going to make a way, make it's it way to some sort of streaming service. It's out right now. Yeah. Um, one. So we want to thank obviously Julia for coming on the show and uh, breaking down her process. So uh, if you're on the YouTube channel, make sure you guys hit like and subscribe. 
Uh, if you do check out the movie, head to the comments down below and let us know what you think about it. Uh, head out and find the main show on all of your podcast outlets. Uh, give us a subscribe there as well, too. Uh, and again, as always, recommend the show to friends and family, because that's how we continue to grow uh, the reach of the Real Blend podcast. And we continue to get some amazing guests on here as well, uh, including Carrie Fukunaga, the director of the Le the last uh, James Bond film starring Daniel Craig, the latest James Bond film. Uh, he will be our guest on the main show coming up. So uh, subscribe to us. Didn't and skip that one, did you? No, no, I made it to that one. I love that movie. That was a lot of fun to talk about. So uh, we'll be back with more interviews and fun movie content. Content on Real Blend. Talk to you guys soon. Sure. Bye. Hubie. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.